unlock exclusive content and access to our podcast while supporting our show. How is that possible? Become a Narratives of Purpose patron at patreon.com forward slash NOP podcast. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Narratives of Purpose, a place for conversations with inspiring leaders that is all about amplifying social impact. I bring you unique stories of changemakers, of people who are contributing to make a difference in society, and by showcasing these individual journeys, I would like to inspire you to take action. If you are tuning in for the first time, my name is Claire Morigande, and I am your host on this podcast. In this new season, I am welcoming back previous guests to find out how their companies or their organizations have grown since they were first featured on Narratives of Purpose. On today's episode, I am catching up with Bart DeVita, one of the most influential thought leaders of the digital health era. Bart is based in Germany. He is the founder of the Hippo AI Foundation a non-profit organization that focuses on creating data and artificial intelligence commons for the digital ecosystem to fight health disparities and ensure health equity. With this foundation, BART aims to be instrumental in driving the democratization of medical artificial intelligence. Please take a moment to rate and to review our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help other listeners find narratives of purpose and further amplify the stories of change we bring on our show. All right, now let's jump right into the discussion with Bart. So it's quite an exciting technology or a bunch of technologies. Um, there is no single definition of AI in that sense. So at this stage, AI is more dwelling in, in that space historical data of our decisions that we have made to re replicate these sort of um, decision making. And, and in healthcare, this is about recognizing patterns in uh, histopathologic images or in um, radiology images or CT scans. But it's also about trying to understand perhaps the language of life, which is encoded in four different letters, um, ACTG, um, and, and which is a a mysterious language still, but I think machine learning will allow us to uh, decrypt that language and accelerate discoveries in that sense. And I started to ask myself the question, what is the purpose of the technology? And I saw the power because I think it was the missing element between the internet, computer technologies, but then you needed AI. And if you have these three elements, you can truly democratize knowledge. And if you do it in the right way, we could make the world so much better. So I started thinking how I could do this. And that's why I decided to leave my career, uh, create a non-profit. Um, and I had this very naive thought that this non-profit should be something like a, a mixture of the Linux Foundation, Doctors Without Borders and the Ocean Cleaner Project. Uh, because I think these purpose-driven um, organizations going more and more into fashion. And I also understood that if Doctors Without Borders is able to collect 1.6 billion in donations every single year, like if, if somebody can manage to do that at scale and you can collect that same amount of money to create data and license it as open, um, open accessible available data, 
that you probably could change so much as and never would be able to do so in any job. That was a short clip of my first interview with Bart, which was released exactly one year ago. He was featured in episode 41 that was published in November 2022. I encourage you to listen again to that conversation to hear about Bart's absolutely fascinating background and what drove him to create the Hippo AI Foundation. Like every guest I talk to on the podcast, I have been following Bart's work since we first spoke. I caught up with him a few weeks ago to learn more about how the Hippo AI Foundation evolved in the past 12 months, but also to find out about new developments in Bart's personal journey as a founder. Take a listen. Thank you so much, Claire, for having me again and allowing me to uh, update on uh, my journey. It's a pleasure to have you because I have to say I've been fascinated by your journey and I've been following a lot what Hippo AI is doing. And uh, I know that you've launched something that is called Ask Paper. And there's also some quite exciting news. You'll be speaking at a conference, the World Health Organization uh, conference very soon. And you will also be at the UN General Assembly. But before we jump into it, I want you to quickly, you know, in a couple of sentences, briefly just remind our listeners, what is Hippo AI and what is your overall mission with this foundation? Yeah, so uh, my name is Bart De Witter. Um, for those who don't know me yet, I've worked 20 years in healthcare um, IT tech industry. Um, and after 20 years, I asked myself the question, why don't we see the effects of democratization that normally technology has in healthcare? Um, so I left my corporate life and started a mission to uh, democratize the most important technology that is connected to healthcare, which is AI. Um, I believe that as humanity, we would do a a big mistake if we start to close down all the knowledge and make that exclusively available to only a few uh, when it's patent protected or protected by certain intellectual property rights. I believe that uh, if AI is trained on our patient data, that the outcomes and the models should be open and accessible to all. And I believe we can truly make a game changer out of that to establish health equity. It's been, I think, the most difficult journey of my life, uh, but the most rewarding. Uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm fighting a lot of powers um, that want to capture very quick a lot of value and capture that value before it's actually uh, deployed on the market. But um, I'm advancing, so I'm quite satisfied uh, where I am. Well, that's good news. And it's good to know that you're advancing, even though it's challenging. I want to speak about the changes since we spoke last time. So we spoke exactly one year ago. And I've seen that through your newsletter as well, that you've launched something called Ask Paper. And tell me about that and how is it really serving the healthcare community? Last year, I decided to change a bit the strategy. So there are two directions in that strategy. One is directed to building a platform that is focusing on hosting a community and enabling them to collaborate faster, uh, working together faster and giving them access to resources and tools uh, so they can um, accelerate the development of open source medical AI models. And for that, um, we are building a stewardship model for profit uh, that is connected to the nonprofit, where we are getting, uh, hopefully, uh, very soon a positive answer on a larger funding pool so we can go from Ask Paper to the whole deployed uh, platform. So what is uh, the Ask Paper first? 
Um, as you know, when you start with a big platform vision, you need to start with your small MVP. And the smallest thing that we could build is to solve a problem that a lot of AI researchers have today is that there are so many models out there and there are so many data sets that are being published that they are not findable. And the reason why they're not findable is that they are published within the corpus of a paper that is behind a paywall. It is as simple as this like Nature Magazine or Springer, like any Elsevier or Springer outlet uh, puts this paper behind the paywall and in the abstract, there is not written that there is a model published or there is not written that there is data published. You need to go in the paper and start reading it and somewhere in that paper there is a link. And that link leads them to GitHub or to some sort of repository where you can download a model. If you want a Google search, you find don't find that either. If you go to GitHub, you don't find it either because you cannot use clinical terms. So what we did is I'm looking at the workflow of these researchers today and give them a tool so they can do this faster. So we used a large language model. We now also have a browser extension. So when you are visiting Nature Magazine or reading that paper, uh, you can, through the browser extension, for example, write extract data sets, and then it will extract the data sets that are mentioned in the paper in your personal uh, account profile. So uh, by doing so, these researchers win two to three hours a day uh, of work and they can start building um, a knowledge base of all the, the data sets and um, the models extracted. The reason why we did this MVP is, of course, threefolded. First, we want to deliver uh, value to these clients to see if we can manage to deliver value. And the usage data and our NPS course, which is measuring the satisfaction, um, is really good. Uh, the second thing I want to do is that uh, we decided to not uh, create our own user profile database, but connect this to Discord. Uh, that means that um, we wanted to capture the community um, so we can start working with the community to build a community platform because we want to do this very user-centric. And now on Discord, we have 1,100 um, AI researchers coming from all continents, like from from Kenya to Korea to South America, North America. Like, and we can now tap in these communities and start working together with them. So our Discord server is, um, people can introduce them. There is a manifesto and it starts building that community platform that we want to build ourselves. So like Discord is like an intermediate um, a place where we give our community a home. And the third reason was that we want to um, build a proof of concept. Uh, of a technology that allows us uh, for building the next phase. So what we're going to do is, uh, after our paper, we're using the technology and we have contact with um, uh, organizations that allow us to um, scan 40 million papers at once. So we extract all these data sets at once, we classify them using clinical terms. So you can then use mesh terms and say like, hey, I'm, I want to look in dermatology, this sort of model, and then we will make them findable without nobody having to read that paper. So the reason why Elsevier and Springer are not offering this is because if you look at copyright laws, they don't own any copyrights on the link where that data or that model is stored. What I also learned is that, that a lot of the supporters are coming are actually physicians or um, younger biotech engineers, uh, bioinformaticians. They are looking for resources. And so what we're going to do is um, uh, first, uh, on the platform development is working on project-based learning skills. So we want to give the students access to tools and educational tools so they can start working and building their own and training their own AI models. And with them together, with the community that we're building, 
we're going to go and uh, build that whole platform that allows them from an idea to a clinical grade AI model to develop that in a co-creation mode globally uh, on open source principles. So the, the main goal is to build a platform that hosts the biggest community on open source medical AI. Uh, and, and we will, on the platform, make tools so the research that has been done and the models that have been trained can be used by the industry in a commercial use, but cannot be privatized. Like it's still open source. That's the first thing uh, of the strategy, like building the platform. The second thing what I changed last year is um, having a nonprofit is is really, sorry for my words now, but it's a pain in the ass. So like living from charitable money doesn't really work in Europe. So I needed to find a new finance model. Um, and, and that's a good thing. The more you are challenged, the more creative you become. And there was one thing that out of all the activities that I learned is like, um, A, there was one event once uh, where I was at the AI for Good conference where um, a, a company from Mountain View, California, a big uh, search and internet search company, uh, was presenting their work in India where they uh, used um, eye, like iris scan data to detect blindness. But you need uh, ophthalmological skills for doing that. But if you don't have ophthalmologists, you can do it by AI. So that company was presenting how good they were doing that. And I asked them like, well, is the data that you extract being published as open data so these people in India have access? A, B, is the model that you train on the data, is that open? And <laughs> then C, did you ask for consent? And I got in all these things, three questions and, and not really answer like was a corporate blah, blah, and nobody was giving a real answer. The answer was three times no. Like, no content, uh, the data was not open, the model was privatized. And then I said, like, well, I come from Belgium, but this reminds me of my great-great-grandparents who went to Congo and then told, we're giving you healthcare in Congo and we're taking all the natural resources out of your country. And I call this data colonialism. I got a really a few evil uh, uh, looks. Uh, how can you dare, like, questioning this and like well this is not good like this is there is no good in this this is for me as social behavior the common goods there the, the resources you grab them and you privatize them and then you create dependencies and you say like well we are doing good but like you have you're now dependent from us it has nothing to do with sustainability with increasing resilience and building local communities um and all these things so that was one event that triggered me. The second one was that work that I did on breast cancer. We got uh, support from uh, a, a big farmer that comes from the UK and Sweden. And they said, like, we want to support more in open source. But if we do that, then the competitor that is in Switzerland, somewhere in Basel, also profits from that without having to invest. So that's called the prison dilemma in game theory. So if one shares and the other one doesn't share, the one who shares loses. And so... There's a lack of incentives, like for openness. If these companies want to invest in openness, you need to incentivize them in something positive. Uh, with all these things together, I started to look into the ESG framework because the ecological social governance model should actually support the sustainable development goals. So I said, like, from 2025, when the European Union is going to mandate for these companies to publish ESG governance uh, reports, that means there is ecological, everybody understands the carbon footprint of a company, what is the social footprint? So I started to think further on that. And now we created a new framework. It's called regenerative AI, and it comes from the regenerative economy. Um, so we put regenerative AI in opposition to 
extractive AI. So what is extractive AI? Um, if you look at OpenAI, which published GPT-4, took all the common data from Wikipedia, everything that the scientific community contributed, OpenS took everything and then didn't publish anything anymore. When you have a transaction with GPT-4, every transaction learns from your data, so they take, 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 but they don't give back. So that is a social behavior for us in that sense. You create asymmetries, which lead to power asymmetries or information asymmetries. And in healthcare, this leads to inequalities. So we say like, this is extractive AI. So on the generative AI side, like there are principles that are connected to open source licensing uh, and other principles that we are now defining that we can measure. So the idea is that we create uh, what we then call an index on regenerative AI, where we measure all the AI systems in healthcare and we score them. If we score them, um, Moody's and rating agencies can use these ratings to kind of increase or decrease ESG scores based on the social or asocial behavior of these companies. And we only do this on healthcare. So with this, I wrote down a, a concept and then I contacted 70 people uh, where, we, where there are two Nobel Prize laureates and many, many different authors from everywhere that I'm, that I'm connected to in the last uh, few years. And they all said, like, we want to become co-authors. So I, I'm, I'm creating an open source project out of this, but I want this, this framework to be established. And in order to get acceptance, it's good that you have quite a lot of authors there that support this. So what we are doing now is we are fine-tuning with four uh, co-authors the concept. Um, we, we've resubmitted it uh, to a very renowned uh, paper, and then we're going to publish it uh, by this year. And then uh, by the end of this year, we're going to do a kickoff event in Geneva where we will present that. Um, and then we are um, hoping and we are planning to reestablish the EPOI Foundation as a Swiss foundation in Geneva, where then the focus will be about publishing the index and then introducing a concept which we call health data offsetting. So in, in that sense, um, people criticize that way because companies can liberate themselves by spending money it's like well somebody needs to pay for the creation of the commons so if we can use these certificates that we then sell for health data offsetting uh, and if uh, all companies says like i want to increase my esg score on the social level and i give 100 million for open source development then we can grant these funds for the development for uh, innovative life-saving uh, innovations in the AI space so that is the whole concept. And everybody I talked to was like really fascinated. And that's the reason why next week I'm doing the first keynote at a European World Health Organization conference where quite a lot of ministers are going to listen to this story. And in two weeks, I'm going to be in New York at a side event uh, during the General Assembly where I was invited at the advisory board meeting of the AI Council for AI Governance. So I, I think I'm onto something with this. Like suddenly you see traction and then we can finally point fingers at that Mountain View, a California company where the European Union in Brussels with all the regulations didn't manage to do anything and lower the power asymmetries that these companies have. So with this, we can, like we can support and we can benchmark a social behavior, but we do it only on, on the healthcare. I'm quite surprised that up until now, just even given the example you just shared about this company with the iris screening about blindness, how is it that the established institution perhaps, or even, you know, we're speaking about European Union or maybe governments are not able to challenge these companies and what they're doing? Yeah, it's, it's called diplomacy. <laughs> 
if you are a diplomat, um, you are always uh, not taking any strong standpoint. And I think if you look at the United Nations, the World Health Organization, they have to be diplomatic because they are funders. Like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is a large funder of the World Health Organization. They don't like open source too much. Like Bill Gates was uh, calling open source 20 years ago communism. And what I started to realize is that uh, the influence of capital and industrial interest on research is quite large. Like even in, in, in Germany, uh, third-party funding for research that comes from the industry where even if you want to become a professor and you want to get a chair, you need to come with external funding. And that external funding is really kind of already influencing decision-making on what is that what we need. And I had quite a lot of discussions here in Germany where they said like, well, we need big tech for, um, and we need these third-party contracts for funding our research infrastructure. And I said like, what? First, we missed the opportunity to build our own cloud infrastructure, and now we are dependent, so we're going to take their money to become even more dependent. doesn't make any sense. There was one point where we need to cut ties here and, and take a very strong standpoint. And if the politicians and the parties don't do it, um, and if the uh, academical infrastructures cannot do it anymore because of the dependencies, then mostly these things are driven by uh, civic society movements or uh, NGOs or nonprofits. So I think I'm in the right spot to do this because I can be non-diplomatic and strong in defending these um, norms and values and principles that we stand for. And so to this point, what are you perhaps expecting or envisioning as outcomes, for instance, to your talk at this World Health Organization conference? Because as you say, you're very independent still you have a platform there and you have a voice and you will be addressing yourself to these people. So what are you hoping or expecting in terms of outcomes of what you're going to deliver there? Okay, I have 20 minutes. Um, and in the 20 minutes, I need to nail it. And nailing is like uh, A, breaking with all the dogmas around open source. Um, there's way too much people that still think that open source means giving everybody a free beer. That, that's not what we do. What we do is allowing everybody to brew their own beer. That's something very different. We give everybody the possibility to be independent, sovereign, resilient in digital healthcare needs. So if I can already explain that, then that's a huge win. That This is not about uh, communism or this is not anti-capitalistic at all. This is about finding a common layer for collaboration between industry partners. Um, the second thing is that I want to uh, reach is that they understand that there is no any argument anymore against open source AI. Since we talked and now, the world has completely changed. In the large language models, it started with Bloom last year. I think I mentioned that in our call that Bloom just was published. And then we have seen a tsunami of collaborations. And to give you one example, Stable Diffusion, which came out in model 2.5 um, a month ago, which is a diffusion model for text-to-image generation, was published as an open source model um, one and a half month ago. And it has been downloaded 2.7 million times. Downloaders are coders and hackers that download this. These are 2.7 million. There is no corporate in the world that employs 2.7 million people. Like, if you have so many people working on a model, they're going to cross-pollinate innovation. They're going to make this thing more efficient. And that's what we have seen happening the whole 12 last 12 months. I made jokes that some of the models can uh, soon run on my bread toaster uh, because you don't need any compute power nearly, they became so efficient that even Meta, Facebook, started to publish open source models. Now we have to be careful with open source because they don't publish the source code, they don't publish the data, they only publish the weight file. But 
at least with the weight file, there is a lot of value that they created. But we need to watch out that we don't overhype it because it's still not open source. They don't share the data. But um, with Llama, which is their model version 2, the last one that came out, they released it on the commercial open source license, which completely changed the game. One week later, Microsoft said, like, we're not going to only do open AI. We're going to work with Llama, open source. So they have a model on the Microsoft cloud that competes with open AI, which is a closed model. I don't see a future for open AI. Um, anymore. I think the open source world is eating um, um, the closed world uh, very rapidly. So what I want to explain next week in Porto, there is no reason in healthcare for us to drive a closed world. Like we need in Europe regulations that drive only openness. Like there is no reason because the whole system has proven the last 12 months that openness is faster. Why do we need to save life? Faster innovation. It is cheaper. What do we need in healthcare? More access. So all these arguments that I'm going to bring would hopefully silence everybody who thinks that the intellectual lie that people say you need patent protection in order to get investments. That is not true. If 2.3 million people download a model in one and a half week time, there is no investment at all of these people. People have other drivers to work on this. So that's going to be my other take. And the third one is going to be, of course, I'm going to present the regenerative AI model and trying to find partners uh, because we, we need strong partnerships for that. It's amazing what happened in just 12 months. And as you say, I mean, when everybody has the same access, then obviously that's where the magic happens, right? Because you don't have restriction and people are really creative enough to build those solutions that are needed. When we talked last time, we were still closer to the post-COVID period. But there is something called like the rubber band effect. During COVID, everybody saw what openness meant, how fast we were, we didn't have any barriers. The first candidates of the mRNA vaccine went to clinical trial phase, one clinical trial, two weeks after the Chinese published the sequence data uh, on virology.org, two weeks, because there was no barrier. Everybody learned how to collaborate. And the reason why, because we had a shared enemy, and a shared enemy leads to collaboration. Now, the rubber band effect is that we moved further but then suddenly the pandemic was let go and then you let go of the rubber and we back there. Like nothing changed. Now Moderna is pushing the prices up of their drugs. Like we are back in the very old world where everything is being siloed and that doesn't make any sense. Like we live in the year 2023. Like we are talking on a computer and it's connected to the internet, which is based on open source. Every person living in Africa, I can talk to with on the internet, but then it comes to healthcare and that person would give his data for getting in a digital diagnosis based on some sequence data. And then there was some therapy and we would not give him access anymore. We, we need different models. We need to completely reinvent how we create value in healthcare. And I'm not against value in terms of earning money and being profitable, uh, not at all, but I think we need to stop competing on owning life-saving goods and only giving 40% of the world access to that. And we need to start competing on experiences, like who creates the best experience. And then it can well be that some farmer will go with Gucci and creates the 500 million drug therapy, cancer therapy for some Saudis that want to afford this. Like That's fine. As long as the life-saving substance of that 500 million therapy is also available in a Ryanair concept. 
if we can move to that, we still will see growth, we still will see investments, and the industry will collaborate and we will compete on experiences. And everybody who has been a patient knows that experience really sucks. Sorry for my words. But like, I think my daughter was already born last time we spoke, but like when I, like when we went to the Universal Hospital here in Berlin, it's horrible. Like even when for, for bringing your child to the world, there is no effort on experience. If you look at the taking drugs, you still have a, a box with a paper you cannot read. Like you go to a lab test, you cannot read it. Small prints. Like if you go and, and there are cars that have been pulled off the market because they have to call back a car. Everybody who owns a car is being informed. With drugs, nobody is informed. Like they don't tell you, oh, we had a bad chart. Now... We need to inform 100,000 patients. Like, nobody cares about the experience in that sense. We are stuck in power plays of Games of Thrones. And we need to democratize this in order to create value on what I call the experience economy level. I think you're onto something, as you were saying, and I am looking forward to see what is the outcome of the feedback of your talk next week in Porto and how this awareness grows and what follows up after this discussion. I also have, um, I feel traction. So I have a, a Swiss documentary from Swiss television that um, um, is, is following me then. On, and, and there are things happening that people start realizing, okay, that, that not case out of Berlin uh, with his open, romantic, uh, idealistic uh, Don Quixote dreams. Uh, that's all names I've been called in the last three years, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm a Don Quixote. I'm a, a romantic. I'm a dreamer. I'm an idealist. I'm a communist. Like all these things. No, I'm none of them. Like I'm a realist. Um, and I'm more realist as all those who close their eyes that we are creating a health system in the digital space that is going to lead to even more inequality if we allow data to be ordered in some single platform companies and doesn't flow anymore. All the others are romantizing because they believe that everything is going to be as cheap as Uber, but they forget that the prices of Uber in New York increased in the last uh, 10 years when they started and now by factor of five or something because now they have a monopoly and they have shareholders. They need to see growth. Of course, they're going to increase prices. It's not because it's digital. It's going to get cheaper. And that actually comes back to saying that the models that we've been evolving in the past decades need to change. Like you were saying, Uber started at a low price, but now if they have shareholders, so they're basically going to the system that's been built already. And once you're in that system, then basically you can't offer what you had disrupted before. So basically, it's the same thing for healthcare. You need to disrupt the way it is now because as digitization comes along, if you haven't disrupted that foundation of it, you're basically just carrying out the same principles just in a new environment, right? Absolutely. And, and I think what, what Uber has is like they own the supply and demand data of, of some cities uh, in that. That's why they can do this. What is disruption anyway? Like um, disruption is mostly new technologies that lead to cheaper prices that lead to more empowerment of everyone. Uh, for me, at least. And healthcare hasn't been disrupted. I've been watching uh, startup pitches since 2004. It was the first time I was in Silicon Valley. That's uh, over 100 billion of venture capital investments in startups ago. And in 2004, the total cost of healthcare in the US was uh, 14% of GDP. Now we are 20%. I asked myself, okay, we invested 100 billion in startups. Where is the disruption? Everybody was promising disruption. And now the U.S. citizens are paying 6% of their GDP more. 
while life expectancy is going down, prices of insulin went up at 2,200%. Nothing really democratized. No, it's it's extraction in the financial markets. Like we're being sucked out. Like life is being capitalized in that sense. And I think that should not be the model of healthcare because it, it, it turns us into some sort of slavery that we are dependent on these systems in order to live. That is the absolute contrast of freedom and everything what we connect with a democracy. I don't understand why even in the US, people are going on the streets and starting to scream out very loud. Like, like cannot be that the top 1% lives 15 years longer than, than the poorest in, that, in, in one single country. And, and it was funny because I was at the Lindauer Nobel Laureate meetings um, and I had to moderate a panel uh, with a young researcher, like with three Nobel Laureates in medicine and um, two young researchers. And there was one young researcher from uh, Harvard and she was not very pleased because my topic of my panel was AI and health equity. And she said, there's no problem with health equity in that sense. And then at the end, she made this thing that like, well, I was once in India and I saw people living without a shelter. And so we need to look at the sources, why health equity exists. And I said like to her, you don't have to travel to India to see health, health inequalities. You are living in the US and you, you're talking about India, but she's completely blinded that in her country, 70% of the personal bankruptcies are because of healthcare costs people selling their houses because of cancer treatments. All these things that, like for me, this is absolute dystopia. Um, and, and I think we need to, in Europe, not repeat that. And, and, and if the US can learn from us, then it's fine. So my question now to you, before I also let you go, is you mentioned previously as well that people call you a dreamer, uh, you know, romanticist, whatever. How would you encourage or what would you advise to people who are also seeing this potential and how they can contribute to make things different and beneficial for everyone in the end? That's a question I couldn't answer at the beginning, but now I start to find an answer on that question because I think my main driver is about focusing on the problem. And it's a very complex problem. And I think Einstein said once that uh, if you have an hour to solve a problem, focus 50 minutes of that time on the problem and 10% on the solution. So um, start really understanding your problem. I see way too many people repeating what other people say and I'm going to solve it without understanding uh, system theory and, and all the dynamics around it. So focus on the problem. Then once you understand the problem, be very focused on your solution. And if, if nobody says you are crazy, that's the cliche, but probably your solution is not disruptive enough and believe in yourself. I think the most challenging thing for me is really I had really doubtful moments. And the reason why I kept on going is because I've, I have a good marriage and a wife that supports me. It's really true. Like it, it is like, she's like, believe in yourself. And sometimes you need it from an externality that says like, Hey, see what you, 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 okay. I didn't see progress at all. I was like, okay, like, I don't even know how to finance things and everything else. Uh, but then it's it's really about believing in, in, in that, what you want to achieve. And uh, if your mission is really touching people, um, a lot of people will agree. They will not speak out for you because they are captured in that system. Like I'm, I have many people working in pharma say, I love what you do, but I cannot support you publicly because we, have a diff we are captured in our system. So I think you need to really stick to your vision. Believe in yourself and, and then have patience. Don't go for short-term exits. Don't believe that you can change complex problems within one, two, three years. It doesn't work. Everybody who claims that they did something in two years very quickly never ever did do that. Like You don't change complex issues. Um, 
if you claim to do that, you just jumped on somebody else's work. Probably we're surfing the wave that already was realized by others in that sense. I like it. Believe in yourself and be patient. And I have to say, it's a consistent advice or at least an experience I've been hearing for entrepreneurs is really patience, persistence as well, just to really stick to your vision, you know, whatever comes along. And I think something you also mentioned is having the right support system because moments of doubt, <laughs> there will be more than you can imagine. Challenges as well. So having that support system is also helpful. Thank you very much for sharing that. Thank you. Um, and why I'm, I don't know if you're going to approve this video, but people are provoked by my head because it, of course, it's a provocation. <laughs> make AI open again. So you have a red cap, red baseball cap, and it's written in white to make AI open again. People then think, of course, directly at, at a presidential candidate, uh, but it's also the colors of Switzerland. And of course, make AI open again is a play, of course, to make America great again. But it's provocative. And what I learned as well is that we need these provocations to shake up people. Like I had a journalist who was really upset about my cap. And I said, like, are we going to really discuss my cap? Or are you upset that our data is being appropriated? Why don't you get more upset up by this cap or the fact that I'm of the problem that we're discussing? Because if it's a cap, everything is wrong in our world. If people find somebody wearing a cap more living in Europe, not affected by anything of the president, like it's not our president, and then getting upset. And think, they miss the point, basically. <laughs> but, but that's how people work. They get triggered because they have been triggered the whole time on social media, and then they get a reaction. And and that's why I, I provoke this, and it works really well. I've, even Ala Levy, the minister president of the, the general director of the Ministry of Health in Switzerland, um, I have a picture with her. Um, I have quite a lot of Nobel Prize laureates wearing uh, the thing. But... Um, we definitely start uh, the conversation. And that's why I'm so happy that you have me here. We need to think way more uh, about the future of our healthcare systems because it's going to affect all of us. Well, thank you. Thank you as well for coming back again. It's, it's been really a pleasure for me. And I'm happy that the platform that I've built in the past few years is also something where I can have someone like you who opens up conversations or maybe topics people don't think about, but are actually relevant for everyday life. So thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you so much, Claire. The mission of BART's organization, the Hippo AI Foundation, is to develop medical AI for the common good by liberating all future medical knowledge, essentially by making it open to everyone. If you wish to support the foundation or even join the Hippo AI community, then check out their website at hippoai.org. As always, you will find the link in the show notes. I would also like to share a couple of additional resources you might want to look into that were published after we recorded this conversation. The first one is a blog post titled The Elevator, Trust and the Data Commons. Bart DeVita makes the case for OpenAI for Health at WHO Europe. It was written by Jane Zarason Khan on her platform Health Populi. And the second one is the 20th edition of the Hippogram, the Hippo AI newsletter, titled Regeneration Sustainability. All the links to these resources are, of course, available in the show notes. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I appreciate you taking the time. That was episode 61, a new conversation with Bart DeVita on making medical AI a common good. 
make sure you leave us a review everywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, remember to share this episode with a friend, a colleague, or even a family member. Until the next episode, take care of yourselves, stay well, and stay inspired. Mm-hmm.